is Fazana for Subject ACT, bringing you the news stories and events of significance to the Canberra community and beyond. In tonight's program, we'll be discussing the barriers, stigmas and issues around mental health that affect young persons from culturally and linguistically diverse or cald backgrounds. This is a topic that is growing ever relevant in the face of a changing Australian population. Cultural and linguistic diversity is often cited as an important feature of modern Australian society. The emergence of migrant communities in Australia has been on a steady increase since the 1970s. It is projected that by the year 2050, 32% of Australia's population will be born overseas. Despite this, very little is currently known about the mental health experience of cowed communities and in particular their youth. According to a researcher from the University of Melbourne, cowed populations face a number of distinct risk factors that can impact mental health, including separation from communities and culture, language barriers, social disadvantage, racial discrimination and traumatic experiences prior to immigration. I recently spoke with Swati, who is a youth leadership advocacy officer with the Multicultural Youth Advisory Network. She is a former advisory group member at the Centre for Multicultural Youth, known as CMY. We spoke over Zoom to discuss her insights, experiences and opinions on this topic and to discuss some of the projects she worked on at CMY to address this issue. Swati, what is unique about the mental health experience of cowed youth and what are some of the major barriers that they face? Yeah, this is always a really big, complicated question, really. And I think it's interesting when we think about the term called before we look at the actual problems. So obviously, it's the kind of acronym that we use for culturally and linguistically diverse young people. Um, and if we look further into that category, we can also talk about refugee and migrant young people, which has kind of been my focus for the past few years, and both, you know, as a former young person and now as a professional. And I would say that there are the unique barriers kind of come from the different settlement experiences that those young people have. So whether it be, you know, as a first or second generation migrant or due to a forced settlement experience. So coming to Australia seeking asylum, for example. And all of those different backgrounds bring with a person kind of different misconceptions, different stereotypes, different understandings um, and different perceptions of what mental health and mental illness is. And of course, when you kind of transplant that into the Australian context um, and add on the complexity of a young person trying to navigate all of these new services, you kind of meet with numerous barriers. And Quite broadly speaking, I think one of the number one problems that we often talk about is stigma. So just the sheer stigma of what mental health means, what is mental illness, what does it mean in different cultures and in different languages and the way it's perceived. Obviously, stigma is a really huge problem, especially for young people. Um, And coming from refugee and migrant backgrounds, there is an added layer of complexity because you don't know what the different family structures are. So young people have less voice sometimes or they're more accountable to different people. And that can sometimes be quite difficult, make it quite difficult for young people to actually get through to a service, for example, and understand their needs. Racism is another huge one that I think often is a little bit understated when we look at service navigation and issues with service navigation for young people. Because um, the one thing we do know really well is that one bad experience can stop a young person from accessing help and just really broaden the amount of time it takes for them to go back and get the help that they need by like, about five years even. So how do you think current services can be better improved to support cowed youth? 
So I'm a huge fan of co-design and I really think that organisations, no matter what kind of organisation you are, really need to look at their governance structures and um, their youth participation frameworks to see whether they're actually including those young people that they're meant to service at every stage of their decision-making process and design processes. Do you think mental health professionals could be better trained to support CALD youth? Absolutely. Um, I think that there is a huge gap in training and in education when it comes to professionals and the workforce and I don't think there's any there's no point blaming anyone for this but what we do need to do is look at okay how can we actually better embed things like cultural competency and teaching cultural safety and navigating these different cultures and cultural identities that professionals might come across in their um profession with young people so whether it be as a social worker psychologist youth worker whatever it may be and that training really needs to embed elements of that co-design like I said so things that are actually designed with professionals in partnership with young people that really meaningfully puts their needs their thoughts and their ideas forward and what that does it is, is it also ensures that that sort of training is up to date right because the problems that young people have in this year and the, you know last year are obviously so so different going into a COVID-19 world so that kind of maintaining the integrity of that co-design process and ensuring that young people are put at the center of all of those decisions or working in really great partnership with professionals just means that they're getting up-to-date current information um, that they're able to adapt and work with in their practice. And what about CALD communities? What do you think they need to better understand about the mental health struggles faced by their youth? I think what happens here is there needs to be a better partnership with services and communities. I think, um, and this is something I struggle with, is when we talk about, okay, what do you actually need? And we talk about community needing to step forward and provide solutions. I think some of that kind of runs the risk of really placing blame on communities, saying like, you know, you're not doing the right thing. But we need to take a, t- take a step back and remember that, you know, depending on what background or what kind of settlement experience particular communities have, there's a certain level of distrust with services as well because of potential racist experiences, complex experiences, or just overall negative experiences. And so what I think needs to happen is services need to do a better job of understanding the communities they're working with. And another problem that kind of comes out here is that when it comes to mental health treatment and when we talk about mental health, there's the Western mindset is really dominant and we need to be better at understanding how different cultures approach mental health as a whole in their daily lives and mental illness, because there are actually different ways that that's catered for in different cultures, especially in collectivist cultures, for example, where, you know, families live together and there's different ways that they manage their mental health that we just haven't quite understood yet. So I really think that we need to be better at working together to find these solutions rather than just saying, what does community need to do better? So being a CALD youth means that you often have to manage different and conflicting cultural expectations. Do you think this contributes to the mental health struggles that they face? Absolutely. Um, at a huge level. And again, I want to talk about kind of blame and expectations here as well, because um, when we talk about those sort of expectations, we have to think about um, what it means to be the model minority, right? So if you're, for example, the post 
that we, you have those examples of, um, you know, run, young asylum seekers making it in Australia, you know, overcoming great hardship, um, really extreme settlement processes to come to Australia and overcome all adversity to become this really great doctor or lawyer, for example. And people really need to take a step back and think about what it is that that means and how the media has treated young people in the past as well. For example, especially in Melbourne, um, there was, a, but also nationally, really, there's been coverage around, quite negative coverage around Sudanese young people, you know, gang-related violence and this sort of really unfair negative rhetoric. And what it tells young people is that because of the colour of your skin or because of where you've come from or because you've come to Australia in a different manner, you're not really integrated or accepted until you fit the identity of that, you know, ideal model minority. Um, and the amount of pressure that places on this particular cohorts of young people is inc just immense, not to mention the pressure that then gets reflected by community because they say, you know, you can't let us down. You have to live up to these standards. You have to represent. And the pressure to represent in, is just really unnecessary at times, but it's also very real. And there are so many young people, exemplary young people from refugee and migrant backgrounds who are incredible leaders at the moment. And even in my work, I recognize what incredible leaders they're going to be. But the one thing that I often get worried about and in asking this question, the one thing that really comes out to me quite passionately is that we need to give young people chances to fail. And being able to have those chances to fail and experience emotions and, you know, navigate their mental health struggles, whatever they may be really honestly, is where they really will have the space to be young people and grow up um, and understand how to manage their mental health, both in the Australian context, but also while they're understanding their identities um, as young people, whether it be first or second generation migrant, whether it be as a refugee, when they're figuring out how to fit into Australia and how they fit into their families and then how they fit into whatever career it is that they're going to be in, you know, between all of those expectations. Throw in a mental health struggle within there and it's just, it's just crazy. So mm -hmm. I really think that there's a problem where because of this mindset of the model minority, there's very little room for our young people to fail, to try different things and to really think out of the ordinary without being, um, without experiencing really unfair levels of backlash. Do you think you can go the opposite way sometimes where a young person from a cowed background may want to make choices that are different from the cultural ideals and standards set by their families and communities? Yeah, um, I was actually online today and saw this really interesting quote which came to mind, which is, I think it was something around, um, I mean, this is specific to South Asians, but it could be broadly apply in this situation, which is like, you know, young people from, I think it was like young brown girls either have to choose their happiness or be um, or the happiness of everyone else, um, which is a really depressing thing when you think about it. But you're right. Sometimes it feels like a really like black and white decision where either, you know, you fit into that model minority you fit up, you live up to the expectations of your community and you become that, you know, doctor, lawyer, whatever it is, and you don't put a foot wrong, meaning that, you know, there's no, nothing to tarnish any sort of reputation. So the stigma, that goes back to the stigma around mental health and mental illness. So there's, there was nothing extra that anyone had to deal with or hear about. Then that's great, but it, it, comes, it comes at a great cost, you know, it comes at the cost of the young person's experience and identity and their true freedom, really. And it kind of leads us to think about, you know, what exactly is it that we're, we're all fighting for. 
um, when it comes mm -hmm. to success mm -hmm. and when it comes to a young person's happiness in this regard. And I honestly think that communities, but also the Australia in general, needs to understand that um, true freedom or true success is when our young people can can actively participate and choose the path that they want to um, mm -hmm. and, and not be afraid to fail um, and not be afraid to experience emotions and not be afraid to seek help for example. And right now that's not the case. Tell me more about how your own experiences have influenced your passion to address this issue. So I came to Australia from India, like when I was quite young, my family had already migrated here, but also had quite a complicated migration experience because I also went back and forth for a few years between India and Australia. So I would kind of went from like prep, knowing English here in Australia, then going back to India and forgetting all of my English and coming back. And it was just, it was very, very weird. And we grew up in like very white areas of um, Southeast Melbourne, really, back when there weren't really a lot of people of colour around. Like maybe they were, and I just don't remember, but it's just not my memory of growing up. But, you know, we grew up around a lot of racism um, and a lot of dysfunction, I suppose. And later in life, I came to understand that, you know, a lot of that dysfunction came out of having a family member who suffered from a severe mental illness. And that kind of led me to explore and you know, I was due to certain events, like, you know, this person getting sicker and sicker, it kind of forced me, not just me, but us as a family to come to terms with what it meant to be carers to someone with mental illness and what it meant to live around mental illness and what mental illness actually meant to us coming from, you know, a very traditional South Indian diaspora community that didn't really um, want to deal with anything complicated. Like they just wanted to, you know, be successful and live their lives. And that's all anyone wanted to hear. And nobody really expressed any emotion or talks about the hard stuff exactly yeah. no, nobody talks about the hard stuff and I can attest to the fact that that's still very much the case but as you know as our family kind of had to keep going through this I went through all sorts of different emotions but the the one thing that stands out to me is just being really angry um mm. and I think a lot of that anger came from the fact that you know this was my life my life was, you know, this was my family. And yes, there was someone in my family who suffers from mental illness, but, you know, I didn't feel particularly that there was anything wrong with my life or anything not wrong, but I didn't feel that there was anything to be ashamed of. And I realized that a lot of the shame and a lot of the internalization that I had been feeling initially didn't come from my own family, but it came from everyone else. Like it came from the outside. Mm -hmm. um, it came from, you know, those expectations from society. It came from not wanting to be seen as someone who was struggling when I'm meant to be successful. It came from not wanting to put a foot wrong. So all of those things that we talk about. But there was also a really huge knowledge gap when it came to actual service navigation and how I dealt with services to get the help that we needed, um, you know, for the person we were taking care of, mm -hmm. which was a really big shocker because as someone who spent most of their life here, I would consider that I have pretty good knowledge of services and, you know, how to do things. But when it comes to the mental health system, it's a completely different game. And realizing just how different it is and just how complex it is was really honestly earth shattering because I kind of expected it to be, you know, I could talk to doctors, talk to medical professionals, be able to explain things, be able to get a timely responses, be able to get the help that I needed. And that's just not how it was. With mental health and mental health care in general, you have to be an advocate. You have to fight for every small little win. And it's really unfortunate that our system is built that way. And I mean, Victoria has really acknowledged that the system is broken here and we have a Royal Commission going on. But I think mm -hmm. even nationwide, the systems just aren't built for people from other cultures. It very much sees, it doesn't really see colour or understand colour, but it also does because 
I've also dealt with a lot of racism in my interactions with medical services. Um, mm -hmm. For example, at the height of lockdown um, last year, just right before we spent about 100 plus days in lockdown, I had an incident where I had to call an ambulance for this person um, that from, you know, the loved one that we take care of and then spent the first 20 minutes with the paramedics who were meant to, you know, help us explaining why I had called the ambulance because they basically didn't understand how to deal with someone who was in mental distress um calling an ambulance at a certain point is something I'm very well versed in doing like I've been caring mm -hmm. for 25 years I know when I need to get immediate help um basically these paramedics came to our house and I'm not at all saying that you know this is the case with all paramedics this is just one experience I've had one of many but they came and basically treated me like I didn't understand what an ambulance was for they were like, do you understand an ambulance for is for emergencies? You can't just call because you want help first. Like you're not, you can't just jump the line. Kind of that kind of rhetoric. And this is despite the fact that, you know, we have an entire care team and I'm following instructions. Yeah. I'm doing it what I need mm -hmm. to do. And you know, this took about 20 minutes of me, you know, going back and forth and then eventually kind of bowing down to whatever it is that they were saying. So things like, no, I know, uh, you know, kind of appeasing them like, yes, you're right. You know, how about we just, you know, go to the hospital and, and see what everyone else says. And, you know, we got there and they re they talked to, you know, the different staff members and realized that I was doing the right thing, but still it really put me off from ever having to seek that sort of immediate assistance again. I was like, I just don't want to go through that again. Um, and then I spent the rest of the pandemic pretty much doing everything in my power to avoid that. But what came out of that, you know, hundred or so days of having to deal with this as a family alone was really just how little anyone else in the community really was willing to engage with this issue. Like it just became very apparent that, you know, there was someone unwell and it just brought back for me how there were so many other people in community. There were so many other different incidents, for example, people who had lost their lives to suicide, people who had lost their mm -hmm. lives to drug overdose. And mm -hmm. I remember going to these funerals and nobody would talk about it like at all. <laughs> like it would just be like mm -hmm. this person's gone and, and that's it. And nobody would talk about it because they didn't want to ruin their reputation. And mm -hmm. You know, it all just kind of came together for me in terms of, you know, what advocacy meant. And I realized, you know, even though I had to become an advocate because I had no other choice, I might as well do something useful with it. And to me, getting young people at the, the stage where, you know, they're kind of discovering themselves, to me, it's like really important to get them at that stage and give them the skills and the tools to deal with these sorts of conversations so that, you know, they don't feel helpless. This is Fazana for Subject ACT on People Powered Radio 2XXFM. I've recently been speaking with multicultural youth advocate Swati about the issue of mental health and cowed youth. I was curious to learn more about her work at the Centre for Multicultural Youth to address this issue. What is the Centre for Multicultural Youth and what are the main services it provides? So CMY is a peak advocacy body for young people from refugee and migrant backgrounds based down in Nam in Melbourne. So it's a not-for-profit organisation providing specialist knowledge and support to young people from refugee and migrant backgrounds. And what that really means is providing direct programs for young people 
from these backgrounds, but also providing knowledge and capacity building to sector. So organisations that work with young people from those backgrounds. So the Reva project run by the CMY deals specifically with the issue of mental health and cowed youth. What is the project and how was it started? Yeah, so I should have also said that part of the youth programs that are offered, one of the kind of flagship programs at CMY is the Youth Advisory Group who help advise the board and the organisation on issues that are important to them and what they think the organisation as a peak body for young people from refugee and migrant backgrounds should be focusing on. And I was part of the Youth Advisory Group for a few years from 2018. And part of being the Youth Advisory Group was, you know, working on a project that we were really passionate about. And I came to CMY and the Youth Advisory Group at a really strange time, I think, in my own life. I came to it at a time when I was really just understanding what mental illness kind of really meant in my life and my future and what my identity as a carer was. And so we kind of embarked on this mental health research project with all of the other Youth Advisory Group members because it was a huge area of interest for everyone there. We all had different experiences with it that we wanted to explore. And we had, you know, resources and support of an organization to get behind it. So we went through a process of consultation with young people, with service providers, and with CMY itself to really kind of hone in on what the gaps um, and what the reasoning behind the low service utilization for mental health services when it came to young people from refugee and migrant backgrounds was. And we kind of came to this idea that there was a huge problem with stigma. You know, it was really hard for young people to even talk talk about it. So how can we even get into service navigation if they can't even talk about mental illness? We went through a process of like ideation, went through all of the responses from the consultations that we did and came up with the the solution that young people from these particular cohorts really needed permission to talk about mental health and mental illness. And there's a really special thing when you think about you can't be what you can't see. And we kind of combined this idea of the lack of representation of young people from refugee and migrant backgrounds and certain leadership positions, and especially those who openly spoke about mental health with storytelling and with skills building and with knowledge sharing to come up with um, what was eventually named the Reverb Project, which is basically workshops delivered in schools to young people of school age to talk to them about mental health and mental illness. And the really cool thing and the special thing is that those workshops are delivered by young people from refugee and migrant backgrounds with some sort of lived experience or passion for mental illness and mental health. So the first workshop offered by the Reverb Project is called Young People to Young People. Why is it important for cowed youth to speak openly about their mental health experiences with other young people? I think one of the biggest things is, I mean, we talk about stigma again and again, but it is stigma busting. The more and more people talk about it, the more and more conversations it opens up. And I think anyone who talks about, you know, anyone who identifies as a lived experience advocate or any young person who's even like had a five second conversation with a friend can really identify with hearing that you know for every conversation you have you'll probably get like five or 20 even 20 disclosures from other people Mm -hmm. um so what it does is it it says you know um you know imagine a young school kid who's never seen like I don't know, a young a Vietnamese leader or like a young Indian woman um, talking openly about having dealt with a mental health struggle or actually telling you A to Z, like how they sought help and how they solved whatever it is that they were dealing with, or maybe they're still dealing with it. Um, it kind of makes you go, wow, oh my God, like this exists. Like, you know, I'm not alone. It's, it's really on top of building that representation. It's about saying, you're not alone, but also that, you know, I'm standing here. I'm someone who's dealt with it. I'm getting through it. And I'm not only just, you know, 
here, but I'm surviving and I'm doing really well. And there's a real importance around that, um, the, uh, around calling them young leaders, the young people who run these workshops, because it's also about saying that dealing with mental illness, no matter what community you come from, doesn't make you any lesser, doesn't make you any less yeah. deserving of opportunities like, you know, going out to schools and running programs or being in whatever career you want to be in. Um, but it helps build bridges. It helps them identify safe people to talk to or think start thinking about like, who is it that I can go to? And some of the content they cover in these workshops is about, you know, identifying those strategies to help yourself and then help your family or your friends um, and identifying safe spaces in your community. So the second workshop you offer is called Young People to the Mental Health Sector. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so Young People to Mental Health Sector is a really kind of exciting extension of the Reverb program. Um, and I'm actually really proud that they've been able to develop this. But basically, it is kind of what it sounds. It's young people delivering um, capacity building workshops to anyone who works in the mental health sector. And to clarify that, it's not just like psychologists. It's anyone who kind of considers that they work with young people from these particular backgrounds and they might benefit from this knowledge. So it's not like restricted to anyone, but quite simply, it's a professional development workshop to address the underrepresentation of diverse young people accessing mental health services. And what the young people do is that they share their lived experiences alongside best practice cultural responsive approaches to promote accessible mental health service provision. So it's really about putting young people in the room, you know, going back to that youth participation framework, ensuring that their voice is central at every step of that process and putting them in a safe space, in a learning environment with service providers where um, they're able to ask questions, but also navigate these modules that young people have built um, in partnership with CMY to open up some conversations about what it means to be culturally confident, what it means to work with young people from these backgrounds. And at its core, I think it's really about acknowledging that it's important to be curious and giving them a space to practice that and understand it. What advice would you give to a young person from a cow background who is struggling with mental health? I think the most important thing is to know that they're not alone and that yes things seem really hopeless at the time but you're wanted, you absolutely deserve to thrive and be amazing at whatever it is that they're going to be amazing at but most importantly that help is out there and that if they are willing to reach out and talk to someone that they identify as a safe person so for example if they're at school talking to someone at school if they're um, if they have great friends, talking to one of their friends, picking up the phone if they don't want to talk, if they want to talk to someone independent and recognising that there are, you know, national helplines out there that are available to give them information, but also that there are other safe spaces like um, community centres, there's Headspace, but also their local GP. There are so many different people out there just wanting to help them. So I think the most important thing is recognising, you know, the power that you have within yourself um, and the importance that you have, no matter how hard things can get and building up the confidence for yourself to reach out, not for family, not for community, not for anyone else, but for yourself. The focus for this evening's program was to discuss the mental health barriers, stigmas and issues encountered by cowed youth in Australia. I'd like to thank multicultural youth advocate Swati for her time and for speaking so openly about her insights and experiences on this topic. 
As a former cowed youth and now working professional, I understand the difficulties and challenges of having overcome my own struggles with mental health and of being a primary support person for a loved one struggling with a mental illness. The key message I'd like to leave you with this evening is that if you or a loved one is struggling with mental health or are in distress, please know that you are not alone and that there are services available to support you. You can call the Kids Helpline on 1800 55 1800, Lifeline on 13 11 14, and the ACT Mental Health Crisis Assessment and Treatment Team on 1800 629 354. In the case of an emergency, please dial triple zero. Thank you and good evening. 